You're listening to PZ's Podcast, a guided tour of ancient truths and absurd tales for the modern pilgrim. PZ is space cruising at low altitudes most days through a galaxy of phantom planets of the mind, ever in search of an answer to his wound. Is he a space Parsifal bleeding under his suit but hopeful for journey's end? Buckle up and join him now as he blasts by Mars and Venus, rounding Luna in sure and certain hope of our childhood's end. You can reach PZ while he is on this quest at pzspodcast at gmail.com. Now, here's PZ. Podcast 108 is dedicated to Fred Rogers because it is part two in a discussion of Bishop John Charles Ryle, who was Bishop of Liverpool in the Church of England from 1880 to 1900. And I gave a lot of um, rapid-fire information about J.C. Ryle in the previous podcast, and now I'd like to sort of think about him as... um, as a man with a feet of clay, but that is always true. Both the um, besetting weaknesses of the man and his very great and in some ways noble strengths. Now this cuts very close to my own heart because it relates to hero worship in my life. I don't know about you, but um, it was always true when I was an adolescent young man, that I would have uh, heroes. I had just a succession of father figure heroes, and there are all sorts of reasons why that might be. But the fact is, they existed in my head in uh, multiplicity. And when I became actively involved in the evangelical Christian cause at age 22, I simply developed a new series of heroes. And in particular, um, the evangelical fathers of the Church of England uh, school of thought that had really come into being through uh, George Whitfield in the 18th century, down through um, the early evangelical bishops like Charles Ryder and uh, J.B. Sumner, who became Archbishop of Canterbury, and uh, then Charles Simeon and the very visionary, if somewhat eccentric, um, leadership model that he with enormous fruitfulness and success embodied. And this uh, party, or school of thought in the Church of England, deserves a great deal of study because it's one of the very rare examples in the history of uh, Christianity in which a uh, very vital evangelical-type movement seemed to be contained, not entirely contained, but generally able to be contained and constitute itself an actual element within a national or established church. There's a kind of odd, and I would say probably only in England, type of um, 
ability for the firefly of renewal here to be somehow um, tapped by a national church, which only once happened in the German church through the Pietist uh, breakthrough and the famous rescript of Württemberg, but that's also another podcast. And there are other examples of it, but generally speaking, a really lively, um, personal, existentially engaged encounter with the Christian gospel finds itself uh, at odds with, and a very strange bedfellow within sort of orthodox Christian institutions. It just is a fact throughout history, and many books have been written about this question. But the evangelicals were unusual because the evangelicals in the Church of England seemed, for the most part, to be able to live and even thrive as a tolerated and sometimes um, very strong uh, minority in Anglican life in England, uh, coming almost to a majority position in the 1970s, through the famous NIAC conferences, and as signified by the appointment of uh, Bishop Donald Coggan of Bradford, uh, who became the Archbishop of York and then the Archbishop of Canterbury, and also um, George Carey, who was translated from Bath and Wells to Canterbury. So um, we all were looking for these wonderful heroes because they struck us as remarkable. And Ryle himself was very much a father figure or a hero to me in my head because I never met the man. He died in 1900 and is well buried in Childwall Parish Church Cemetery. And um, what is it about Ryle that we now can say or that I could say? Because I'm really talking about my own sense of whom I admire. And really, as you and I all know, the sort of... um, limitations of hero worship because it is limited and really ultimately gets you more or less nowhere whether you have living heroes or dead heroes because they uh no human being can really be set up uh on a whether it's you know from a hero of the ecological movement or from a hero of the agrarian reform or uh, a hero from revolutionary south american militant uh politics or down through, it's really Salvatore Allende. I mean, heroes are always human beings. And uh, I know that now, and I'm, I've learned it through disappointment and disillusionment. Nevertheless, Bishop Ryle has something very interesting to offer. And let's talk about his weaknesses first, and then end up briefly on his good points, because there's something very ultimately real, both about religion and about human beings, that emerge from, I think, his life, at least as I now see it, in 2012, and I became passionately interested in uh, Bishop Ryle in the uh, early 70s, so I've, I've had a little time to think about him and to live under the spreading chestnut tree of uh, John Charles Ryle. Now, the um, negative point about Ryle is that he was angry. Uh, at a certain level, his anger, which is very human and very normal and very adolescent, was obviously not sufficiently abreacted in his life to sort of ground him and give him a kind of grounded place to live and work and uh, move ahead with his growth as a human being. That sounds awfully modern, doesn't it? But I think we can say it. And I think he would say it only beyond the grave, from beyond the grave, to quote an amicus wonderful movie. He probably would say it now, were he here, like D.H. Lawrence is the man who died. He would probably say, John Charles Ryle, that he also failed to control or to stabilize his internal reactivity that I'm sure predated his Christianity because his career was in some ways destroyed and his reputation because of his reactivity that he never controlled. Now, let me say why I can say that with... um, 
with candid uh, sincerity to the record. His ministry at Helmingham was a wonderful ministry. He uh, did great work in his parish, but it allowed him to do national work and to go all over England <clears throat> and writing and speaking and uh, creating a body of work that's actually very impressive. And I do want you to know that if you want to sort of get the feel of Ryle's um, really brilliant controversial writing style that is completely undated. You can read it today, and it's um, while some of the concerns are dated, the way in which he expressed his concerns is absolutely pellucid. And so you read, go to his, uh, uh, the Idaho publishing house that recently published Light from Old Times, and go to the essay entitled James II and the Seven Bishops. It's also privately, it's also been printed as a pamphlet all over the place. I'm sure it's a PDF somewhere on the net. And uh, if not, uh, you you can easily find it because it's presently available. Light from Old Times, the essay entitled James II and the Seven Bishops. And it is a, a, by the way, Huxley himself, I think, um, indirectly references this through his character Helen at a point when she becomes uh, a uh, an ardent ideologue in Islands in Gaza, 1936. Um, she indirectly references the concerns of Ryle in that wonderful essay. But if you want to get a picture for this man's literary gift, read that essay among many others. But he became angry at his patron, whether it was unconscious or conscious. He named his patron in his presence in a stewardship sermon or a stewardship-connected sermon and forever lost this man's loyalty and lost this man's friendship. And he had to leave within like a month. I mean, he was out, and that doesn't happen in English life. People don't, they they announce their retirement or their resignation, even in difficult, conflicted situations, sort of a year ahead. It's just the way they do it. Um, They, and then they stay in post forever. They have a very uh, low bottom for sort of getting up in the morning and going to work in an unsatisfactory work environment. But he was out in weeks because he offended the patron because he got angry. And whether it was unconscious or conscious, anger came across and he wrecked a vital, fundamental and foundational friendship. Then uh, Bishop Ryle allowed himself to get angry at a um, an Anglo-Catholic, rather saintly Anglo-Catholic sort of anchorite priest in the Diocese of Liverpool, who, in fact, had made his own bed and who had uh, sort of wanted to be prosecuted. He was sort of dying to go to prison for his Anglo-Catholic con- ritualist convictions, and he was breaking all the laws of the Church of England, which at that time were also the laws of the land, and to some extent, in a formal sense, still are to some extent, but that's all gone by the boards. Um, Charles is defender of faith. Uh, But whatever um, is happening now, uh, Ryle was canonically and legally allowed to let a a prosecution under the state, not the church, go forward against this man. And he did not hold it back because he was sympathetic with the prosecution and let it go forward. And he made a terminal mistake and forever after became sort of the red flag for high church elements or Anglo-Catholic elements in the Church of England. And uh, this uh, was a very massive mistake. And I think even later, somewhere he sort of admitted it, that he, while he was uh, sympathetic with the concerns behind the instigators of the prosecution, he was a low church Anglican evangelical man. After all, on the extreme end, like Richard Hobson, his great friend, uh, but nevertheless, um, he alienated people all over the ball yard and created himself a legacy of obnoxious hatred to a, one very large and influential group, not large and influential today, uh, and yet, nevertheless, and he's very popular, Ryle is among evangelicals, like in Boise, um, and in the 
um, Calvinist wing of the Church of England, which is alive and well. But um, he made a mistake there, and he regretted it later on. He said he was forced, but he probably could have somehow been a little deft in that respect. And then he uh, made a fatal mistake. He got a little angry at his the burghers of Liverpool who wanted to build a beautiful new cathedral. And uh, he sort of was against the idea, and I'm sympathetic with him and many of you who believe we should worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And we know how ecclesiastical institutions can develop a highly idolatrous and really offensively self-invested and attached life of their own and can become really sort of synagogues of Satan to use um, 16th century polemic Protestant language of the very people that Ryle liked, including, you know, Bishop Hooper of Gloucester. But nevertheless, um, he could have handled that better. He alienated his greatest sort of backers in a worldly sense. He tried to cover it by saying he opposed, as I've already told you, the cathedral for the sake of clergy salaries. But that wasn't the real issue for Ryle. Ryle could have probably lived with a cathedral. They had no, no plans to make it a high church cathedral. And to this day, it's it's really in the overall context of the God's eye view of human history. Liverpool Diocese is still evangelical, if you can use that word today, about any place in the Church of England where the distinction might still be of any weight or interest or seriousness. And yet you would even find today that there's a very strong history of evangelical churchmanship even existing at this moment in the diocese. And I think I can say that as a fact. Now, um, <clears throat> nevertheless, he became hated by the... When he finally resigned in 1900 and died very quickly, there was a huge breath of relief among the sort of commercial, mercantile, worldly forces of the new and growing Liverpool. And he, uh, people like Lord Halifax and all those people, they were very numerous and influential in the CV, breathed a sigh of relief. And also um, the people at Stradbrook remembered the... Um, imbroglio with the Marquis. And um, I'm sure if he were alive today, he wishes he had not died with those um, tragic uh, brüche. And I know about those things. I can, uh, I know about those things uh, myself. So um, his uh, reactivity was a negative. Now his positive is an extraordinarily important one, however, on the other hand. Oh, by the way, um, he also became, you know, when he was appointed to the See of Liverpool, the first bishop, he was in a way taken advantage of by uh, Disraeli, Lord Beaconsfield, soon to be, because Beaconsfield, who was a Tory, actually, oddly enough, appointed a very conservative uh, candidate to the See of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle, simply to get at in a last-minute kind of, you know, when a president issues presidential pardons in the last 48 hours and shreds a lot of personal papers, quote, end of quote. Uh, but when he um, uses his sort of last-minute patronage to uh, to do a little damage, as it were, well, um, uh, Disraeli left on a cloud of self-congratulation because he appointed a man that his successor, Disraeli's successor, William Ewart Gladstone, hated and everything about him because Gladstone was a high church Anglican, albeit a liberal. Fascinating. These labels are always in people's heads. And uh, um, so Ryle, even Ryle's appointment was the... Um, 
object and the subject of an internal political dispute and actually a very personal bit of animal magnetism between Disraeli and Gladstone. Now, on the plus side, this was a man of granite, a giant of a man with the heart of a child. And this is where, as I said before, people often misunderstand, especially people who sort of think in terms of sort of what journalism writes and often um, sort of seeing things always in categories. Um, Ryle did not become an evangelical Christian in order to become an evangelical Christian. He did not become who he was in order to be a low church, controversial uh, Protestant uh, uh, contender in the C of E. He was saved as a young man when the roof fell in or the bottom fell out of his very young life. J.C. Ryle was saved. And that is what I'm really uh, wanting to say. He was saved because, and I believe it was through a clergyman, someone in Macclesfield, uh, I think there was a legitimately good, the real deal type of clergyman in Macclesfield whose message somehow connected with Ryle's enormous adolescent, early early adolescent need, even childlike need. And he fixed on it. He got it. And uh, he was saved by the love and the mercy and the compassion of the picture and to him the living reality of the merciful and compassionate passionate Christ on the cross, the man for others, the friend of sinners, the friend of tax collectors and publicans, the man who threw out a, um, remember Fontella Bass, Rescue Me, and as you'll hear at the end of this podcast, Ricky Wayne via Joe Meek, Rescue Me, it's a different song and a very much a Meek song, but Joe Meek song, but it uh, pictures uh, the need for rescue. Rescue, my lord of Norfolk, rescue the king enacts more wonders than a man, daring and opposite in every way. Rescue, my lord, un- or less, or, 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 or rescue, my lord. Or thus the day is lost, else the day is lost. Well, he was rescued. J.C. Ryle was rescued as a young person by the absolute attached conviction that Jesus Christ had rescued him in his mercy through the power of the present Holy Spirit in the year 1800 and whatever it was. And from this he never retreated. And this is the, the child of a man had, had made that electrical attachment with the, the uh, fatherly need of a benign and good God. And no wonder I experienced that myself at age 22. I know exactly, I believe I know exactly what had, had saved uh, J.C. Ryle and made him such a devotee of this remarkable message of the rabbi Jesus of Nazareth, who was the friend of tax collectors and sinners. I've often encountered this. Um, it wasn't, however, sufficient, this saving, to fully heal and be the therapy, the healing agent for Ryle in his reactivity because he, that part of him remained alive and well and kicking and finally um, really had a devastating and long-term effect on his other great and affirmative, uh, beautiful, touching, tearful uh, pleas for people to come to the feet of the cross for the man who could save all and sundry culprits as well as victims. I encountered this twice in my ministry long ago, both with men who were leading uh, figures on boards and vestries or governing bodies of churches and institutions where I served. One was a uh, very... Um, old man who'd been converted in a time of enormous personal disaster in his life, personal disaster as a young man. He'd heard Billy Graham preach and uh, he had been saved. His, his life had, had, his need had connected with a, a life raft thrown out by the Reverend Willie, Billy Graham and he was honestly saved. It, and whenever you talked about that period in his life and he was an old man when I knew him, he's long dead, he would cry. 
I mean, he just weep profusely, just as Bishop Ryle wept with Richard Hobson, surrounded by Bishop Ryle's family at the communion rail on Christmas Eve in uh, 1900 or 1899, I think it was, saying to uh, Hobson as the tears uh, profusely uh, trickled down his cheeks, a man of iron turning to his old friend at the communion rail as the consecrated bread, note not host, was given him. He said, uh, grabbing Richard's uh, Mr the rector's hand saying, we shall not meet again. This is the last time. We shall meet again in heaven. And tears. Now, of course, that's an old man's sentimentality and an old man's eyes, but that's the way he really felt. He had been saved and the heart of a child was revealed there. And when I talked to this old man who was otherwise impossible in boards and in vestries and other situations, angry, and boy, he must have been hard work for his wife, you know, (laughs) just impossible. Nevertheless, he cried. And another man later who was also very difficult, very angular. It was almost as if my very presence on a vestry was the inciter for him to become the contrarian. Every vestry and every board that you've ever been on has one person, male or female, old or young, who becomes the impossible person. I actually wrote a little chapter about the impossible person in my book, Grace and Practice. Every institution has one, and that goes for secular institutions. Somehow, whatever's going on inside them is incited by whatever they take to be going on with you. And it's it's fire and water. And uh, this man was also impossible. He voted against everything, frustrated every plan, everything I tried to do that was good. He would always attack it. And because he was such a strong and assertive, angry personality, people listened and a lot of people were cowed. And even my supporters, although they might vote for me and they might abstain from his motions, they would never actively support me because he scared everybody. But when I talked with him, and I talked to him often about the moment in his life when he was actually in his later 30s, when his life had fallen apart like a house of cards, and he'd reached out and actually had found the Christian gospel or through an individual, sort of like an AA type of thing, mighty to save. He would just weep and weep. And at that point, we were one. He and I were one. We understood each other because I understood that too. The trouble with the tears that I would also weep when I talked about the time in my life when I first finally heard the message that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, that very deeply religious, spiritual, and universal message of forgiveness that is the top card and the deepest jewel of the Christian radioactivity. It isn't how can I say this properly without doing justice to it? It is entirely true on its own terms, I would say, but it, it misses out on just a couple of uh, other dimensions of the human experience of living in a separate self and an ego in a world surrounded by other egos and separate selves and in a, a natural universe uh, of other kinds of rules as well. It is almost as if it is utterly true as far as it goes, but it is also a kind of uh, a kind of way to a, to a, a rather uh, to, to, let's call it a a, a quantum physics uh, picture of of man and God in connection that um, is not entirely exhausted by the ethical um, um, uh, wasteland of either being a culprit or a victim and feeling such terrible anger that there's something else that also needs to come in. I would call it something like. The disattachment, something like a little bit of that insight, which often has come to to us from the East, although it is present in the Bible, and it is present in the history of Christianity, and it is certainly present in the mystical tradition. There's something in it that is a little bit too robust, or too um, um, I and thou, 
that um, makes it not entirely therapeutic for the whole course. And so Ryle was saved, and yet his anger which uh, and his angularity, which hit him very, very strongly on three occasions, all of which he surfaces, two of which at least he surfaces, in his brief autobiographical notes, which were not intended for publication, um, but I've read them, and I have them in a box in Ocoee, Florida. All that says to me that... Uh, the heart of a child is that which is great about this man. It was the great thing about Charles Simeon, who experienced something a little bit like that, although in a somewhat more cerebral way. So I salute John Charles Ryle. I believe in him, and I believe in what he did and what he accomplished. But I wish, in a way, that I'd been able to uh, connect with the child part, and yet also maybe um, sort of be with him, sort of like a la Dr. Frank Lake, you know, a la any other one or two other people I can name to kind of um, be present alongside him in a way that he might be able to actually open up to when he ran into the impasse, particularly in Helmingham, when he had to leave his rectorship. And no one ever really knew why, although he said it later on with considerable Ryle-like, that is to say it's slightly disguised, remorse. This is my podcast, number two, dedicated to Mr. Rogers with um, the hope that your own heroes can act as positively towards you and yet not as overwhelmingly um, um, monocular as, for me, Bishop Ryle, in a way, probably was allowed to become. One, two, three, four. Rescue me. Come and rescue me.